This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Climate news gets more extreme all the time. But media and the public are years behind the dire projections by scientists, many of them on this show. Thresholds like polar ice melt, dying rainforests and disappearing species, when tipped, we cannot go back. We can give up or grieve or hope technology can save us from the catastrophe of technology. But a new slim hope is emerging, although you never hear about it. One-third of global warming is driven not by carbon dioxide, but by methane. It is called methane in Europe and sold as natural gas everywhere. Pound per pound, methane is 80 times more powerful as a warming gas than CO2. Fortunately, there is less methane in the atmosphere than CO2. But like everything else, since the Industrial Revolution, humans have more than doubled the amount of methane in the atmosphere. Now comes a group of veteran scientists saying we can take it back out. Sir David King is former chief scientist for the United Kingdom. He founded the Centre for Climate Repair at Cambridge. At the end of September, many of the world's leading methane experts were called to an all-day panel, talking through methane removal to cut warming immediately and buy at least a decade more time. They proposed to restore the balance of methane back to pre-industrial levels by enhancing the natural breakdown of the gas. It is a bold vision. In a sense, we broke the functioning of the atmosphere with greenhouse gas emissions. Now we repair the atmosphere, returning to the balance of gases that sustained all current life forms, including humans and our crops. And as you will hear from two guests who attended that Cambridge Forum, capturing methane may not require the kind of energy and infrastructure needed to get carbon dioxide out of the air. Humans try to restore wetlands. The American bald eagle was saved and returned to the wild. Stay tuned, and you will get the vision. Maybe we can restore the atmosphere. Rob Jackson is Professor of Earth System Science at Stanford University and a Senior Fellow of the Stanford Woods Institute for the Environment. He is Chair of the Global Carbon Project, an award-winning scientist and photographer. His latest paper explains how methane removal can delay dangerous thresholds of global warming. Dr. Rob Jackson, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. Well, the September paper advances a kind of controversial climate solution why is it time to remove methane from the atmosphere? I think it's time to consider everything at this point. You know, I've, I've been in this field for decades, and after you know, watching another decade's worth of carbon dioxide and methane and nitrous oxide emissions build up in the atmosphere, we just we're running out of time to, to reset the clock and keep the Earth in safe at safe levels of warming. I think an idea like methane removal is is unusual and not familiar with people, and it's difficult. But we need to. We need to be exploring all these different options now. Yes, so many scientists argue methane has a relatively short lifetime in the atmosphere. The real lasting threat is carbon dioxide. Your answer? Well, it's true. Carbon dioxide admitted today will be in the atmosphere for centuries, or at least some of it will, a good portion of it will. So we think of carbon dioxide as a cumulative gas. It's like a bucket filling up through time. Methane lasts you know, for a couple decades at most on average. And so much of what we admit today will be gone 
you know, over the next uh, 10, 20, 30 years. On the other hand, methane is a really powerful greenhouse gas, far more powerful than carbon dioxide. So if you look at a 20-year time frame, over the next two decades, for instance, a pound of methane causes 80 or 90 times more warming than a pound of, of carbon dioxide does. So, so if we're interested in kind of buying ourselves time to address carbon dioxide longer term and, and shade peak temperatures and delay crossing temperature thresholds, there's no lever at our disposal more important than, than methane. Well, here in the West, we just experienced a record-setting heat dome last summer and all sorts of wildfires, and there's other heat events going on around the world. So what is the vision here, Rob? What is the methane goal, so to speak? I happen to have been up in, in Oregon at the time of the record heat wave this summer. It was truly shocking to see. The goal for, for methane, first and foremost, is to cut emissions. So I'm happy to talk and speak about methane removal and oxidation because I believe in it. But before we go to processing the whole atmosphere and removing gases, we ought to be focused first and foremost on keeping greenhouse gases out of our air to start with. So the number one agenda, whether it be for methane or for carbon dioxide, is mitigate today. And reducing emissions today will always be cheaper and more effective than spending money to remove a greenhouse gas from the atmosphere later. But having said that, we've, with the infrastructure that's already in place on Earth, power plants and natural gas facilities and such, we're kind of locked into a certain amount of emissions over the next few decades. And it's pretty apparent that we're going to zoom past 1.5 degrees C as a safe temperature threshold. Uh, we have about a decade's worth of emissions. You know, I'm worried that we won't even be able to stabilize temperatures at 2 degrees C. So along with the need to cut methane emissions, I believe we have to now consider other approaches, including removing methane from the atmosphere in the same way that many companies are already set up to remove carbon dioxide now and starting to go down that path, even though it's not easy. Well, Stanford has a reputation for developing technology. What technologies to remove methane from the atmosphere look the most promising to you, Rob? There are two, um, two sort of groups, if you will. For one, the first group is, is to try and enhance the things that happen naturally. So there are uh, radicals in the atmosphere, chlorine and hydroxyl OH radicals, they are the, the things in the atmosphere that oxidize methane, turn it to carbon dioxide to start with. So there are technologies where people are trying to enhance uh, natural oxidation. You could imagine producing OH or chlorine radicals in a stream of air and, and using that to oxidize the methane. So that's one possibility. That's not the possibility that I've worked on the most individually. I'm interested in catalyzing methane oxidation. So everyone's familiar with a flare that you might pass in an oil and gas field or in a refinery. And the reason we use flares is because methane is so much more potent than carbon dioxide, it pays to burn it, to oxidize it, and convert it to carbon dioxide. And we can't use a flare below, you know, sort of 50,000 parts per million. And methane in the atmosphere is only two parts per million. So it's really low concentration. But we can, in principle, use catalysts to do this. So a, a, a catalyst is something that speeds a reaction that's sort of downhill thermodynamically and it can happen naturally as long as you kind of get it started. And so I'm particularly interested in catalysts. Uh, there are compounds like called zeolites that are uh, minerals that are very high surface area and you can embed metals and other things to oxidize uh, methane in those mineral frameworks. So that's the kind of approach that, that I'm interested in. I'm happy to talk about all the reasons why that's difficult and, and many other things too. 
but when the methane is broken down, as you say, carbon dioxide is a major byproduct. Why would you suggest that the CO2 will just be released into the atmosphere instead of captured right then and there? It's mostly a cost argument. If, if you want to oxidize the methane and latch onto the, the carbon dioxide, then you're having to do two difficult things in sequence, and that increases the cost. And the amount of carbon dioxide that comes from this is really trivial compared to the, the carbon dioxide from land use change like deforestation and especially from fossil fuel use. So it's the amount of carbon dioxide, extra carbon dioxide that comes from this is really tiny compared to what we're putting in the atmosphere. And, you know, to repeat myself, methane is such a potent greenhouse gas that it, it, it just makes all kinds of climate sense to want to do this. It's the same, it's the same reason why we don't allow companies to just release their methane into the air at a refinery or an oil and gas field. They, they flare it because it's the responsible and the right thing to do. So we're, you, can kind of, you can sort of think of expanding the idea of flaring in the atmosphere using catalysis, only it's not a flame now. It's a chemical reaction. But methane is harder to break down than some other atmospheric chemicals. Will it take a lot of energy to remove it? Well, literally, no, if it's, it can be done with catalysis. One big difference between methane removal and carbon dioxide removal is that carbon dioxide removal takes a lot of energy to remove it from the atmosphere and then of course you need to concentrate it and pump it underground or you need to do something you need to put the carbon dioxide somewhere methane is you know it's an exothermic reaction methane oxidation is downhill thermodynamically so you could actually get a little heat out of it when you do it and by releasing the carbon dioxide back into the air you don't need to worry about concentrating it pumping it underground the way you do with carbon dioxide i think there are ways in which methane is more difficult than carbon dioxide, and I think there are some ways in which methane has some advantages compared to CO2, and we need both. What if we have a carbon tax that's designed to promote carbon dioxide capture and storage, because that's what politicians and the public are really aware of? Would that help or hinder methane capture? I don't know is the honest answer. We already have here in the United States, we already have you know, the 45Q rule. We have some financial incentives for companies to, um, to store carbon dioxide underground, say at power plants, but we even pay, pay companies to use it for, use the carbon dioxide for enhanced oil recovery, so pumping the CO2 underground and sort of pushing extra oil out of the ground at the pumps. So I think, uh, first of all, I believe very strongly that we need to be investing more than we are in, in carbon dioxide capture and, uh, and storage underground. You know, it makes no sense to allow power plants to continue to just release their carbon dioxide into the air when we could be doing something about those emissions today and need to be doing something about those emissions. I believe that if we can get a carbon dioxide removal industry better established, it will make it more likely that a methane removal industry builds up or grows too. I don't think they're incompatible. I actually think greater CO2 action could help us uh, place more emphasis on methane too. Scientists differ on the methane threat. On Radio Ecoshock, Ewan Nisbet described testing vials of air, and he found recent increases in atmospheric methane came mainly from East African bogs. But Peter Wadhams points to methane deposits frozen on the shallow Arctic seabed. But all these scientists came together in Cambridge Conference recently on methane removal, and uh, it was headed by Sir David King, formerly the UK's chief scientist. Is there agreement now is the time to act? Well, there's certainly agreement that now is the time to act. I, I was fortunate enough to speak at the at the Cambridge conference, and I've um, worked with both Ewan and and Peter Wildens. Um, you know, Ewan's of course an expert on tropical emissions. He's done a lot of work in Africa from wetlands, and there is concern 
that natural sources of methane and wetlands are the largest natural source uh, might increase as temperatures rise. And of course, Peter Wadhams has been one of the strongest advocates for concern about runaway methane release from permafrost thawing. There's you know, centuries, millennia of carbon locked up in the Arctic uh, as peat and in permafrost. And if that system thaws, then that carbon could be released to the air as carbon dioxide, which would be bad, or as methane, which would be even worse. So there is consensus that we need to act, and I think it isn't just uh, wetlands and you know in the tropics. It's oil and gas wells and and coal mining and cows and landfills and all you know all of these sources that we know are out there. We need to address emissions from them all, not just any one category. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Uh, We're talking about ways to delay the worst of climate change with methane removal. Our guest is distinguished scientist Stanford's Dr. Rob Jackson. The guts of the climate benefits from methane removal are in the Royal Society paper published September 27, 2021. And it becomes plain that methane removal works mainly to buy us time. Rob Jackson, how much can we delay the onset of critical warming thresholds? Well, it would depend on the on the scale, the amount of methane that's being removed from the atmosphere. But uh, we, we published a second paper in that uh, in that same special feature in the, the Royal Society organized, and it looked, it was a modeling study of kind of large scale methane removal that a student, Sam Abernethy, did. And his analysis you know, he quantifies not just the temperature savings of methane removal, but also the ozone uh, benefits. Uh, methane contributes to ozone formation uh, near the Earth's surface, and ozone kills people causes respiratory illness, uh, reduces crop yields and plant growth. You know, so there are benefits beyond temperature, but, but we could, uh, you know, we can shave tenths of degrees of peak warming in the near term using this. We can delay the arrival of peak temperatures by decades, too. It is a, it is a lever for delaying the worst effects of climate change. The most extreme case of the IPCC pathways system seems to predict that we could hit four degrees of warming above pre-industrial by 2080, and that's just absolute ecological and civilizational disaster. Is it possible we will need methane removal as a tool to avoid the worst? Well, it's certainly possible. Lord help us if we get the four degrees C average warming across the planet. You know, you will see thousands of years of rapid sea level rise and all kinds of things. So I sincerely hope that we, we don't get there. I, I imagine a world with methane removal that's a little bit different than people than the way people speak about carbon dioxide removal. With carbon dioxide removal, you need to, or we need to remove billions or tens or hundreds of billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the air to make a difference because, it's, because we've emitted you know, a couple trillion tons since the start of the Industrial Revolution. And there's just a lot of carbon up there. Uh, with methane, I envision a, a world where we might do maintenance removal of methane for, say, 100 or a few hundred million tons a year that would allow us to offset emissions from food production and, and sources of methane that are expensive or difficult to eliminate or mitigate. So I, I have this dream of restoring the atmosphere. I talk about atmospheric restoration a lot, that our goal should be to restore the air back to pre-industrial levels the same way that we talk about restoring wetlands and restoring endangered species to health. So we need to be talking about returning the atmosphere to health too. And you could do that for methane in a lifetime, but it will take multiple lifetimes to do that for carbon dioxide just because of the sheer quantities. 
Your latest paper calls for a research agenda for methane removal. Why has it taken so long for this basic step to get going, and do we have the time for the research we need? It's uh, it's taken time because emissions of all greenhouse gases have sped up. I mean, last year the jump in atmospheric methane was about 15 parts per billion. It was you know the, the highest increase in in at least 40 years. So the pace of of the atmospheric change is increasing, and then we're you know we're seeing the world nudged more and more towards. We're already sort of 1.2 degrees C warming now globally, and we're very close to thresholds people care about. And, you know, I, I think in, increasingly there's a recognition that as much as we need to focus on carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide mitigation alone isn't enough to stave off climate change. We need to do something about methane and nitrous oxide too. So I think all of these factors coming together say we need methane action now, and we need to pl- be planning for methane action this, this century because, uh, you know, because some of these technologies are difficult and take decades to deploy. Well, let's assume that methane removal gets the backing it needs. What do you want to see happen? What are the steps to get back to pre-industrial methane levels? The first step is to eliminate or substantially reduce emissions to the atmosphere. So as, I, as we discussed earlier, you know, the, more than half of, of global methane emissions on Earth come from things that we do from agriculture and fossil fuel use. But that methane that's released into the atmosphere is very different than CO2 because it turns over more quickly. So as soon as we substantially cut emissions, the atmospheric concentrations will start to drop. And that's not true for carbon dioxide. It takes it would take centuries to see the concentrations drop without other approaches. So we need to cut emissions, sort of turn the corner on, on reducing concentrations in the atmosphere, and on top of that, use methane oxidation and methane removal to... Uh, to help us kind of speed the pathway down to pre-industrial levels, which were, were well, well below. We're two and a half times higher today than we were uh, a century or two ago. So the methane cycle has been far more perturbed by human activity than the carbon dioxide cycle has. As we finish up here, Rob, what else are you working on these days? Well, I work a lot, and my group works a lot on methane mitigation. We're working on home appliances right now, trying to understand emissions from stoves, gas stoves, and furnaces water heaters and, and co-emitted pollutants from some of those sources. So what, you know, what are we releasing into our homes along with natural gas when we use it to cook? Things like NOx and carbon monoxide and even benzene. But I work with satellite companies and groups interested in detecting large sources of methane from the sky, and I think that's a really exciting area. There are new satellites being launched that will allow us to find the biggest sources of methane anywhere in the world, not just in Canada and the U.S., but in Russia and Azerbaijan and Nigeria and harder-to-reach places. So I'm really active in that space. And then finally, I still care a lot about natural ecosystems. We do a lot of work in forests and grasslands trying to understand how systems will change with climate change and what droughts and heat waves mean for forests and how we can sustain our, our forests longer, how we can even store additional carbon in, in forests around the world and by restoring forests in different places. So I care a lot about the natural world, too. It's not just industry that and technological solutions that excite me. From Stanford University, we've been speaking with Professor Rob Jackson. Rob, thank you so much for sharing your valuable time with us. Thank you, Alex, for your interest. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. Radio EcoShock. I'd like to add one clarification. Dr. Jackson mentioned zeolites, helping methane break down faster. Zeolites are a type of mineral with strange characteristics. 
They are often made with forms of aluminum and silicon like sand, so they're quite common. But as a Scandinavian chemist discovered in the 1700s, these rocks are porous. If you could see inside, zeolites look more like a maze of tiny tunnels, almost like a fiber or a network. There are thousands of forms of common zeolites, and they can be produced industrially as well. It turns out some zeolites, perhaps with bits of iron or copper in them, affect methane in the air. They are catalysts. Their action, called catalysis, is not easy to understand. And here is my very unexpert take: a chemical reaction goes faster if another substance is present. The other substance is the catalyst. As Rob describes in our interview, zeolites could help methane to burn, so to speak. After all, in a fire, a substance rapidly merges with oxygen to create different compounds. Methane will burn in the air if it's concentrated enough, as it is coming out of the drilling platforms. Fortunately for us, methane in the global atmosphere is not dense enough to just burn outright. We would all be in flames if it was. But methane breaks down naturally in the presence of oxygen, producing the less powerful warming gas carbon dioxide as a byproduct. If you could get air moving rapidly over a surface containing zeolites, the methane moves through channels. It interacts with metals in the zeolites and kind of burns very slowly without producing the heat of fire or any smoke. The methane oxidizes, reducing its climate heating threat by 80 times. As you will hear, there are many other possible ways for methane removal, but I think by 2030, you will see sky towers or solar chimneys breaking down methane, trying to save the world climate for another few years. The first solar chimneys are already going up, with one in Australia. Following our second guest, you and I will go to the recent Cambridge Methane Conference for more from Rob Jackson and atmospheric scientist Ewan Nisbet. Rising methane levels in the atmosphere caused a third of global warming, according to a recent UN report. Did you know that? Now there's a non-profit group dedicated to methane action. The CEO was longtime activist and radio host Daphne Weisham. In her previous post with the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington D.C., Daphne successfully fought fossil fuel investments and projects. I knew her work as the editor of Greenpeace back in the day, Greenpeace magazine, and then I learned some radio skills for this show from Daphne's syndicated program, Earthbeat. Weisham is an influencer, in my opinion, with a capital I, from Oregon. Daphne, welcome back to Radio EcoShock. Thank you. It's so good to be with you, Alex. Were you in Portland during the extreme heat dome in the summer of 2021? You know, I was actually back east for a wedding at that point, but my husband was here, and it was it was terrifying. And they've found that shellfish actually. We're baking on the sands, and there was a lot of death and destruction in the sea. Of course, people died in their homes without access to air conditioning, and it, it was really a shocking uh, wake-up call for those who weren't already shocked and woken up. So humans have to do something about this climate situation. What got you going on methane action? Well, you know, I, I ever since I learned about climate change back in the early 1990s when I was working at Greenpeace, 
I was primarily concerned about the impacts on the developing world because I had grown up, was born in India and had, had spent my early childhood years there and really came to love the people of India and the environment of India and, you know, have been tracking just how devastating the science suggests it's going to be for the people of the subcontinent as well as for people throughout the African continent and and Latin America and elsewhere. And, of course, they are the people that have been least responsible for causing this problem. And in my early years at the Institute for Policy Studies, I was working hard to get the World Bank to um, move away from their fossil fuel investments in countries like India because we could see that not only was it not providing the electricity that the poorest needed, it was actually going to some of the richest multinational corporations in the world that had moved to countries like India to to soak up very low power rates for high energy intensive industries. Well, 20 years later, we, we managed to at least get a pledge that the World Bank would get out of all fossil fuels. And we managed to also get just this year, the Biden administration calling on all the multilateral and bilateral development banks to get out of fossil fuel investments, um, starting with coal. But it's not enough. Uh, I now actually live in Washington state. Uh, We've moved from Oregon in part because of the fires there. Uh, My husband has bad asthma and it was getting intolerable. So when we, you know, were in Oregon, we were fighting fossil fuel infrastructure and and succeeding in passing some of the strongest ordinances in the country, uh, calling for an end to all new fossil fuel infrastructure in the city of Portland. But still, what we're seeing in the background is methane levels skyrocketing. And I remember hearing in Kyoto about uh, back in 97 about this methane class rates nightmare and sort of filed that away as something to try to not lose sleep about, but I got recruited to take on the job of of working with a team of scientists who are working very hard, largely with zero funding, uh, some with minimal funding, to try to essentially undo the damage that methane is now doing to the planet. Now, your listeners, especially your scientific listeners, will know that methane is you know, it's a it's a very uh, short-lived greenhouse gas, but it's also a very potent greenhouse gas. It's at least 84 times, and I've heard that they may be revising it up close to 100 times that of CO2 in terms of its global warming potential. And so if we include methane in today's atmospheric readings, we wouldn't be talking about 415 or 4. 19 parts per million, we'd be talking about closer to 500 parts per million, which is terrifying when you think that, you know, pre-industrial times we were down below 300. So we don't even include methane in those uh, figures when you see them come out, 422 or 417? No, no. The GWP of global warming potential of methane is not part of the overall calculation. And that was one of the things that in our at Methane Action, we, we released a sign-on letter back in April, and we managed to get some of the world's leading scientists like Michael Mann and Sir David King and Peter Wadhams from Cambridge and Rob Jackson and others, all saying, you know, we need to revisit this whole concept of how we calculate the 
atmospheric um, climate forcing, people have this idea that we are at around 415 or so, but we are now, thanks to methane's contribution, and it has been spiking, we're now closer to 500 ppm. And you can see that sign-on letter up on our website, which is methaneaction.org. And the thing that's terrifying um, is that the scientists do not know why we've seen a very dramatic rise in methane levels in the atmosphere. It's essentially at two and a half times pre-industrial levels of roughly 750 parts per billion. And we have seen a particularly sharp rise since 2007 and then a really a large spike in, in 2020. And the question is, where is this methane coming from? Of course, fracking has a lot to do with it. Um, we know that fracking for oil and gas is releasing vast quantities of methane, both in the U.S. and in countries like Russia and elsewhere. And there was an excellent piece in the Washington Post recently about how Russia is downplaying its fugitive methane releases with just numbers all over the map, depending on what year they they release them on what their emissions are. And so satellites are now being developed to help pinpoint the sources of, of methane that are seeping out from oil and gas wells. And, of course, coal mines also release methane. But the largest source of methane globally, and this was a surprise to me when I really started diving into the methane research, was, was agriculture. And, of course, uh, a lot of that is is due to cattle and other ruminants. We can make certainly make some reductions in, in our fossil fuel methane emissions, and that's now making headlines with this methane pledge that the Biden team and the EU are going to be taking to the Glasgow summit. But that only pledges a 30%, 30% reduction below 2020 levels, by 2030, and we already know that we are off the charts at 2020 levels. So clearly, it's nowhere near enough, and it also only focuses on the fossil fuel sector. It does not focus on agriculture, and I'm sure that's for political reasons as well as um, just the fact that it's harder to address a more distributed set of sources of methane from, from cattle and other waste dumps and that sort of thing. But Both of these need to be tackled, and in the meantime, we are out of time because natural sources of methane are also rising, and that's the big shocker. As the planet warms, its warming is breeding more warming. We've heard about permafrost, but what was news to me was that also another major source of rising methane is wetlands. As wetlands warm, they are releasing more methane. So methane removal is that, you know, it, it may, that, that may be a bit of a misnomer. You know, we, we, people know about carbon removal and they, if they make a parallel between carbon removal and methane removal, you would think, well, are you taking the methane and storing it somewhere? No. It's just shorthand for enhanced atmospheric methane oxidation, <laughs> which is a little bit long-winded, but Methane naturally oxidizes in the atmosphere via various chemical processes. It naturally um, breaks down into CO2 and water, and um, it also gets broken down in the soil. And the team of scientists that I'm working with are trying to figure out the best way of enhancing the natural way of breaking down methane in the atmosphere with the goal of cutting all 
reduce atmospheric methane emissions in half this decade. So it's hugely ambitious. It's a bit of a moonshot initiative, and yet it's necessary if we're going to uh, avoid even more dangerous feedback loops from the methane from natural sources all over the, over the planet. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with guardedly exciting news, a new way to slow down warming within a decade, and to help your health too. Now back to Daphne Weisham from methaneaction.org. Well, we have champions for CO2 removal, and Jeff Bezos is putting out money into the climate fight. Elon Musk has a carbon capture prize. Does methane removal have a champion yet, and do you foresee a way to commercialize methane removal? No and no. Uh, (laughs) To be brief, we are uh, running largely on individual donors who have seen the the urgency of the science and have uh, pulled together um, a team of really spectacular scientists from Stanford and Cambridge and Copenhagen and elsewhere. And we meet on a regular basis to discuss the latest science and what's the most promising. And there is some very promising science, but there's so little awareness in the funding community, much less in the NGO community, about the potential of methane removal as a, as a game changer. If we can scale this up this decade, we could roll back climate forcing by some 20%, essentially back by you know gaining about 15 years or more. In other words, going back about 15 years in time in terms of uh, the climate impact of, of global warming. So it's not a silver bullet. It would allow us to do all the many, many other things we need to do, which we're running out of time to do, uh, including transitioning fully off of fossil fuels to 100% renewables as quickly as possible, doing all of the things we know we need to do with our forests and farms and fisheries and all of that. But this is one piece of the puzzle, um, and I, I really love... The vision that, that Rob Jackson, who serves on our board and, and teaches at Stanford and, and chairs the Global Carbon Project, you know, he has a, a video that we have up on our website. You can watch it at methaneaction.org under his bio where he talks about the need for a new narrative, a more hopeful narrative of climate restoration. You know, we have all, uh, I, I was there when the 1.5 degree target was being urged as the upper limit when you know before it was two degrees was thought to be the upper limit and in many ways these numbers are random right numbers that we don't know how they will play out we can see now as you mentioned earlier with the heat dome even at just a little over one degree celsius we're seeing just horrifying consequences who knows what 1.5 or two degrees will lead to we need to be backpedaling as quickly as possible, cleaning up our atmosphere as quickly as possible, just as we would clean up the ocean of plastic if it was strewn across the ocean. We need to be doing that level of cleanup at the atmospheric level with a focus on methane because it is so potent and 
and undoing that potency has great potential for restoring the rest of, of the climate. This is Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is Daphne Weisham. She's a veteran activist and influential green mover. And now she's CEO of Methane Action and a fellow at the Center for Sustainable Economy. Daphne, what methane capture technology looks most promising to you? Well, I don't. Um, one of the things that we are trying to do at Methane Action is to remain agnostic. We do not want to be picking winners or losers, in part because we, we want to keep a very bright line between our nonprofit activity and our mission and whatever for-profit ventures people may want to pursue. And you had asked earlier, is there, a, is there a business model? Some people think there may be. My feeling is this is an all-hands-on-deck moment where we need to scale up government investment in methane removal and not make it part of the carbon markets in any way. We are remaining agnostic on which technology is going to win. Some are at technological readiness stage two, some are at one, some are at three. You know, we're, we're at that point where really what, what is needed most is awareness that this is possible and funding, because without that, the scientists can't get very far. And, um, you know, I've had some of my scientists say, you know, if I just, I had to return this equipment to uh, a lab that I was borrowing because we don't even have the money for the equipment. So... It's crazy that we are spending billions on CO2 removal and virtually nothing on, on methane removal, and yet this is the methane moment, and we really do need to be focused on methane removal as well. Well, from France, a scientist Renaud de Richter is investigating solar chimneys to help methane removal. What are those? So Renaud de Richter is one of our uh, senior scientists. He's a scientific advisor to Methane Action. He is obviously the best person to uh, speak to the solar chimneys. I could give you a layperson's view of it, but essentially what it would do is transform through photocatalysis, transform methane into CO2 and water. By using these chimneys, the chimneys essentially would suck in um, the air uh, through a passive, you know, as heat rises up the chimney in, a, say, a desert environment, the air would circulate through these chimneys and then, and it would be, you know, 100% powered by the, by the energy of the sun. The methane would be broken down into CO2 through photocatalysis. Now, I, I can, I, that's about the extent of <laughs> my explanation. Um, you'd have to have him on to explain it in more detail. Well, it could be almost like a sci-fi future where we have these giant towers, but not to cool coal plants or nuclear reactors, but to suck methane out of the atmosphere and uh, sort of help the climate not go over that edge that we don't want to go over. The call for methane restoration has grown from a few scientists a few years ago to Cambridge conferences recently and the signed public letters that you mentioned is it becoming a movement? And do you think all scientists support this, or are there still some who are resisting and, and demanding only carbon capture? Um, I think that as people are becoming increasingly aware of this, we are we were surprised at how readily scientists signed on to not just our April letter, but then just recently we asked them to sign on in support of what we're calling a methane declaration, 
And the methane declaration would call on all governments to, first of all, it's a, it's a, you know, calling on them to absolutely aggressively reduce and mitigate methane emissions at their sources, to secondly fund and initiate programs to monitor atmospheric methane, third to initiate programs to develop the technologies that reduce atmospheric concentrations of methane safely and effectively, and then frame and implement the global governance for the use of methane removal technologies to restore methane levels to pre-industrial levels. So this is a four-part demand in our methane declaration, which you can find up on our website, methaneaction.org. And we recognize that governance is absolutely key in all of this, as is civil society engagement. We have gotten just a fantastic list of, of, again, mostly scientists right now, but we are reaching out to the NGOs and had a wonderful hour and a half with Bill McKibben and informed him of the work of our team of scientists, and he wrote about it for The New Yorker, a really nice column for The New Yorker on on the urgency of investing in methane removal. That's fantastic work. I love it. So last week, Greenpeace published leaked documents from several countries trying to water down the Working Group 3 Solutions, the report that's due out next spring. And it appears that the Saudis, backed by Australia and others, want scientists to delete phrases about phasing out fossil fuels. They say carbon capture and storage will let us keep burning their products. So again, could the prospect of methane capture help fossil fuel producers further delay the transition to renewables? If you know me well enough, <laughs> you know that that is the, the, the last thing that I would like to see happen. And I think it's one, I mean, it's one reason why we have prioritized transparency, accountability, and governance at every step of the way in our work with our scientists and with NGOs, and we're reaching out to Indigenous leaders as well. We do not want this to be a get-out-of-jail-free card for anybody that can and must reduce their methane emissions as quickly as possible. This is not a substitute for methane emissions, dramatic methane emissions reductions. That being said, as I said earlier, agriculture is the number one source of methane emissions. And while some of that can be mitigated, not we can't get agriculture to zero. It's just not possible. And, you know, we're going to have to be dealing with the background levels of methane rising. So this is not a substitute for fossil fuel methane emissions reductions. It's in every document we produce, we say that must be step number one. And that would be step number one of the governance that we're going to be seeking at the global level. Talking with Rob Jackson, we didn't have time to get much detail on the health benefits of getting methane back to pre-industrial limits. What does methane have to do with ozone, and aren't we trying to get more ozone back into the atmosphere anyway? Well, there's two different types of ozone. There's ground-level ozone that is very hazardous. It causes asthma and other uh, human health problems. It also reduces agricultural productivity, and methane is a precursor to ground-level ozone. By destroying and reducing atmospheric methane levels, we are also destroying and reducing uh, or eliminating entirely one of the precursors to ground-level ozone, which is methane. Atmospheric ozone is, is another thing entirely. At the atmospheric level, methane also has an interesting interaction there. If methane makes it all the way to the stratosphere, 
where stratospheric ozone protects us from uh, UV radiation, it can actually act as a catalyst for ozone destruction in the stratosphere. So by focusing on eliminating methane emissions in the atmosphere before it gets to the stratosphere, we're both protecting stratospheric ozone and we're also uh, protecting human health and the environment from ground-level ozone. What is the Biden administration position on methane, and could you talk to us about other methane control developments uh, from Europe or China? All I have heard is that this methane pledge is the big deal that they are going to be announcing at Glasgow. Over 30 countries uh, at last count have signed on to the methane pledge. It's largely between the U.S. and the EU. However, as I said earlier, that 30% below 2020 levels by 2030 is minimal, and the UN Environment Program has said that we could go further and cut by 45% by 2030. So I would say that the bare minimum should be 45% as the UN Environment Program. In terms of China, I haven't been following their commitments I hear they may not show up in Glasgow. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's true, but there are some tensions between the U.S. and China right now that may be playing into all of this. Human projects so often backfire, and sometimes the technology we build takes more carbon than it actually withdraws. Are there any signs of a downside to methane capture? Uh, enhanced atmospheric methane oxidation, what we're trying to do is mimic a process that is solar-powered and wind-powered. There is some evidence that the iron-rich dust from the Sahara, when it blows over the Atlantic Ocean, the sunlight combined with the sea salt spray and the iron in the dust oxidizes methane. It does this on a sort of a continuous process with the chlorine radical and the hydroxyl radical. So, I am not a chemist, but um, some of the chemists that we work with would be happy to talk to you about this. There is virtually no energy required other than sunlight to catalyze this particular, and wind to catalyze this particular methane oxidation approach. There are other ways in which methane can be removed that are energy intensive. My understanding is that Rob Jackson is thinking about perhaps piggybacking zeolites, which can capture methane on these grids on direct air capture machines so that you get a one-two punch. You get the CO2 captured, but you're also cycling through uh, atmospheric methane and and, uh, passively it it gets taken up by these zeolites. You know, I mean, I think that the challenge is going to be how to do this and do it without additional environmental side effects and which is why we have already hired a, an, an independent environmental impact assessment company to work with us to evaluate whatever technologies rise to the top to make sure that they are 100% safe and uh, compliant with international law. Well, Klaus Lackner, another American scientist, came out with a letter saying, yeah, part of the problem is you have to move so much air through whatever you're going to catalyze and and get the methane out because methane's so small in the atmosphere. So he said, well, one thing to consider is 
locating whatever capture units you're going to build in a place with a lot of air circulation, with a lot of wind, put it up on some rocky promontory where the wind always blows. So that will reduce the amount of energy and fans or other things required. And, and again, your solar chimneys answer that, where it just uses the convection of heat to draw it by. There, there should be workarounds so that we don't use too much to get what we really need. Exactly. One one idea is to take uh, abandoned or uh, oil platforms that are no longer being used for oil and gas and use them for some sort of mechanism for re- removing methane from the atmosphere. Well, as we wrap up here, I wish you would tell us again about the Declaration on Reducing Atmospheric Methane, like who the signatories are and who should participate in this. Where is it going? So we are, my colleague John Fitzgerald, who is our legal counsel, uh, he and I are going to be going to um, Glasgow, and we are going to be delivering the Declaration on Reducing Atmospheric Methane to world leaders there. As I said earlier, we are taking signatories. You can sign on and sign up on our website if you'd like to endorse it. We've got a sign-up page there. And we're hoping to actually meet with the U.S. State Department next week to alert them to uh, the need to include this in their work on, on methane so that simultaneous with pursuing methane emissions reductions from uh, the oil and gas industry that they also pursue the promise of, of methane removal and on an urgent basis. Is there anything else you'd like to say to listeners, some of whom were your listeners on EarthBeat? You know, one reason that I have decided to to turn my attention to this particular body of work is I do feel like there is a new narrative needed of hope, as I said earlier, and of restoration, just as we have talked about ecosystem restoration for endangered species or, you know, we've managed to restore the bald eagle. We, we are not yet familiar with the language of climate restoration, and I think methane removal and methane emissions mitigation is the low-hanging fruit around a, a vision that is far more hopeful than mitigating damage and, you know, avoiding catastrophe that may or may not happen uh, at 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius. So I urge people to, to look into the methane removal work that we're doing, and we'd love to engage partners globally in this effort. We have been speaking with Daphne Washam, CEO of Methane Action. Find links to follow up in my show blog at ecoshock.org, and be sure to check out methaneaction.org. Daphne, thank you for your help and for talking with us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Late up your iPod or computer with tons of free green audio from our website at www.ecoshock.org. That's E-C-O, shock like an electric shock, dot org. In our interview, Rob Jackson suggests it is not economical to capture CO2 released when methane breaks down. But can we add methane capture to the new carbon capture facilities being built? Can we piggyback and grab both gases? Let's hear a couple of clips from the Cambridge Methane Conference, September 28th, 2021. So now, Rob, um, you you responded to a question in the Q&A about uh, getting back to cow methane emissions. Would you like to uh, follow that up? Yeah, sure. Briefly, thank you. Um, Maybe just a quick comment on the last question first, if I may. Um, 
and I, I appreciate uh, both Ewan's idea and then um, then the perspectives of of uh, you know the difficulty of piggybacking them. I guess my thought was that there are already increasing number of commercial sites for CO2 capture and, and in those facilities where they're already moving the air, um, the, the methane oxidation would seem to be less of a less of an issue to add it on than it would be to take a, a methane site and do the, the CO2 capture. But anyway, I'm open to I'd be open to discussions about all greenhouse gases and N2O, nitrous oxide is another one to consider too through electrolysis. The comment I had on the on the cattle, uh, it's a new, really interesting one. I was just up at UC Davis um, here, which is nearby in California. And you know, there are these additives, this, the asparagopsis seaweed, in their field trials for both beef cattle and dairy cattle, reduce emissions 80 to 90%. So it's really quite a lot. Um, and there's a uh, there's another product called Bovair, which is a chemical 3NOP. It's, it's, it reduces emissions 30 to 40%. And I put in the comment, Bovair has just been approved in Brazil and Chile for commercial use so that uh, farmers and ranchers there can apply it. It's, it's up for approval in the EU, Australia, and New Zealand. I think that the trick about additives is that, that I'm, you know, all, all tools to cut emissions are worthwhile and important, but, but the additives, it's hard for me to see how you use the additives for a, a cow that's uncontained, let's say a rancher in Wyoming or or somewhere else where the cow isn't in a contained situation where you're feeding it every day. So I think there are issues there to work out. And then of course it doesn't, it doesn't include all the other emissions associated with cattle grazing, deforestation in the tropics and other things. So I, I, I've come to believe that those feed additives are potentially really important and useful, but there are other factors to the greenhouse gases that we need to, to think about. I asked Daphne Washam, is there a commercial market for methane from these removal projects? Here is what Rob Jackson said when asked about that at the Cambridge conference. And um, now there's a question in the Q&A for, from Robert Chris. Uh, and he says, for, uh, for Rob J, what does a market for methane removal look like? What's the product from methane oxidation that would be a feedstock into the commercial supply chain? Or is this a public good that has to be paid for from the public purse? Uh, so the question uh, was about what a market for methane removal would look like, I believe. And I, I should say I'm, I think methane removal is difficult enough that I'm personally somewhat skeptical that we'll be able to, to use the methane removed commercially as a product. I mean, it's a terrific idea, but you know, the, it makes, it makes, it makes us, need to do two really hard things sequentially rather than just one one hard thing so i would i would personally not look at commercial opportunities to use that that methane um, especially when you can still use natural gas as a, as a feedstock at at 100% so what a what a commercial market would look like well there are, you know, there are voluntary markets um, you know the companies uh, that are offsetting emissions uh, some of those companies like uh, stripe and, and Microsoft here in the U.S. are paying premium for new technologies to advance those technologies. Um, ultimately, though, of course, there has to be a wide-scale carbon price, not just for CO2, but for CO2 equivalents or greenhouse gases across the market or something like methane removal is, is unlikely to happen, in my opinion. So the other option would be a regulatory mandate. I'm wondering whether um, John Fitzgerald might have a, a comment on that. John's hand is up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, you. I, I do have a brief comment, which is that the um, Environmental Protection Agency, according to both its former 
senior climate scientist and its former senior counsel, has the authority under current U.S. law to require the removal of methane and to the extent possible CO2 by those who emitted those things. Now, that has not yet been done, but there are steps underway to enable EPA to do that. And our hope is that uh, the Congress will not get in the way of that and that they'll proceed to use those authorities that they have identified but not yet used. So here we have one possible avenue forward, but it's entirely possible with these technologies being available for other jurisdictions to require the same deployment, partly by those who are known to have emitted them, and then beyond that, by the general public to pay for the rest of it. But it's a mixed set of opportunities, and also we have ways for it in the law already. So that's, I'll leave it there. Let's tune in to a few minutes from the September Methane Conference at Cambridge. Radio EcoShock guest, atmosphere chemist Ewan Nisbet at Cambridge. To do with methane there, um, I'm very optimistic that in the pretty short term, we'll do a lot about reduction of emissions from the fossil fuel industry. Um, I think there will be reduction in emissions from other things, particularly manure handling. Uh, Methane reduction is going to be difficult because I think there are very strong things going on in the tropics. Huge tropical landfills that we need to cover, things like this, can be done but needs attention. What it really needs is is a community of interest in the important countries, the the tropical countries, East Asia, South Asia. Um, Greta Thunberg's done better than anyone else in this because she's creating that community of, of real interest. That's where the change is going to come from. This group of scientists and activists are going full out to bring methane restoration into the public and into the halls of power. The methane activists will be at the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. They have top-level attention. You and I need to get this project known on social media and do what we can to get politicians at every level on board. This is one of our last chances to save a world worth living in for our descendants for everything alive with us. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening to Radio EcoShock and still caring about our world. Radio EcoShock.